was about the 1925 Scopes monkey uh, trial. Uh, it was directed by Stanley Kramer and uh, starred uh, Spencer Tracy. The movie, as was the trial, was profoundly anti-religion, anti-Christian, and in uh, particular, anti-creationist. So it was 98 years ago this summer, at this time, that the trial took place, and it was called the trial of the century. Why was that? Well, in March of 1925, the Tennessee uh, State Legislature passed the Butler Act. Let me read it to you. It shall... Imagine this today. It's actually beyond our grasp, I think. It shall be unlawful for any teacher in any of the universities and all of the public schools of the state, which are supported in whole or in part by the public school funds of the state, to teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible, and to teach instead that man has descended from the lower order of animals. So at one point, that was the law in Tennessee. It was simply understood in most uh, of the uh, rest of the United States for many years. But in response to that law being passed, the uh, American uh, Civil Liberties Union, uh, barely 10 years old at that point, uh, searched and scoured and looked uh, in Tennessee for a school teacher who would willfully violate the law in order to bring that uh, new uh, law to court. So they looked through their the roles as best they could, and I, I do think it's significant that they were able to find a socialist who was uh, willing to do this, and his name was John Scopes. And uh, William Jennings Bryan served as the prosecuting attorney, and Clarence Darrow served as the defense uh, attorney. And so what they, they met in uh, Robinson's Drug Store in Dayton, Tennessee, and uh, they convinced him that uh, if he willfully violated uh, the law, uh, the full weight of uh, Clarence Darrow uh, stood behind him, and he would most certainly be uh, acquitted. And so he said that he would, and uh, so he confessed. He was a football coach, and he subbed occasionally, and one time he subbed for a biology class and so claimed that he taught evolution. Now, interestingly enough, after the trial, uh, he claimed that he skipped the chapter, but oh well. What you had was a situation where he was arrested and, uh, and charged. And uh, Protestants, uh, evangelicals, uh, the religious community as a whole was deeply divided over the court case and the fact that Darwinism had assailed... I don't know if, I don't know if they have to work that hard anymore, but they worked really hard in the early days... They had assailed the established church for the last, the previous to that point, 65 years. And evolution had won the day in the national 
psyche. And so the nation was divided, the churches were divided. But one thing was uh, sure, and that it was that in the nation's mind, Clarence Darrow and the reporters had succeeded in making Christians who think that God created the world and all that's in it, and that God created us in his image were uneducated, backwater bumpkins, a belief that actually still persists to this day. Uh, So much so that if you want to go back and find when the theory of evolution was no longer a theory, they call it a theory, but it was in 1925 that it became a fact. If you don't believe that, then just talk about that in any of our schools today. You will be discounted, you will be marginalized, you will be rendered voiceless, uh, trust me. And if you're an educator, you may well be fired. And that's when this happened. It was actually out of that environment that Westminster Theological Seminary Uh, that Dallas Theological Seminary, that's when they sprang up because it so divided the churches that all the seminaries essentially had turned to some form of Darwinism and and liberalism. And so these new uh, seminaries arose uh, in order to help the lives uh, spiritually of the people who still believed Uh, like us in creation. There were conservative holdouts in the academic community, but there were very few who could speak for the millions of conservatives who held that God created us in his image. So enter the man in the pistachio green suit in the flaming red tie. And I've done the best I can. This is kind of pistachio green, and this is as red as I could get. Imagine my entire suit this color, and this tie flaming red. Now, while he's a fixture in today's evangelical society, when he wore that pistachio green suit and that red tie, no one outside of his family had ever, in the small church that he pastored for a little while, had ever heard of him, and yet... This man, Billy Graham, was a nobody who came out of nowhere. He was born and raised during these tectonic plate shifts in our society and, and the religious world due to Darwinism. And yet what happened was he pastored for a very short period of time and he went out with a friend to Los Angeles, California, And his friend said, Billy, that your message is simple, it is clear, it is direct, and you deliver it so effectively, I want you to preach in a revival. And so Billy Graham preached day after day. There was a three-week revival that was there. And interestingly enough, his pistachio green suit and his flaming red tie caught the attention of William Randolph Hearst. If that name doesn't ring a bell, trust me, he was one of the most influential men in the country. 
And after that, it wasn't long before Hollywood celebrities began to show up and began to trust Christ. And that three weeks turned into eight weeks, and that very few people in that tent ended up with 11,000 people in the streets and in the fields and around the tents on the final meeting. Over 300,000 people heard the gospel in those eight weeks, and 6,000 were converted. That small-town southern pastor turned evangelist went from being known only by family to being known by the nation and the world and ultimately by history. Now, the reason I begin here is because I want to give you some reasonably contemporary notion of what it was like when John the Baptist came on the scene. He too was in his early 30s. John was six months older than Jesus. And while he didn't wear pistachio green suits with flaming red ties, he wore camel hair and he ate locusts and honey. He was unusual. Both had a powerful message. Both were complete unknowns. Both came during a time of national, the national collapse of faith and religion. Billy Graham could not happen today. It was the time was right. In the same way with John, the time was right. We read with me uh, John 1, uh, verses 19 through 21. Well, actually, we'll read all the way through 28. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. That was an important note. This was, as we learn the fullness, I think, of the way the Pharisees operated at that time, this was potentially some kind of a trap for John. Then they ask him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, and John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now we have noted in each sermon since the beginning of our study that John the Baptist was on the apostle John's mind. Not only that, but it seems at one point or another he was on the mind of everyone in, in Israel and especially the uh, religious leaders, so much so that they decided they needed to send a delegation to investigate. 
So messianic expectations were high. And they expected a, a, a warrior. They, they expected a, a, a prince. They expected a, a king. They expected someone who was going to deliver them from Rome. So they were looking for someone. And so they were, I think there was some legitimate curiosity. Who is this guy? Why are people flocking to him, listening to him? And let's, let's go see if he may uh, be the one. So the religious leaders then wanted to find out who he said he was. Because here's the, this is the reason why I think there was an element of, of trap here. And that's because John's message. John's message was repent and be baptized. Repent from what? Repent from your sin. Well, the Pharisees didn't have an issue with that. And so, in their own uh, minds. And so, they were, uh, you know, there was, some, there was some tension there. Are you the Christ? Now, understand, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. It's, it's, it means the same uh, thing. So, what they uh, asked was, you know, are you the uh, Messiah and John, sir, uh, uh, and John answered and he said, I am not the Christ. Now, if you look carefully at this, these exchanges, what you'll see is that uh, John's answers get uh, shorter. Uh, I am not the Christ. Uh, I am not. Uh, no. So he got, it got shorter and shorter. He wrote, though, about this uh, first, uh, I'm not the Christ, he wrote uh, in verse 20, and he confessed and did not deny, uh, but confessed, I am not the Christ. That seems a a lot to say about this, uh, this denial. It was almost as if the Apostle John and I have no way of knowing this, but the way he says this, it was almost as if he was there. It was almost as if he was a follower of John and then naturally became a follower of Jesus after the baptism because he's saying it, I heard him confess. Not only did he confess, he didn't, you know, it was like, okay, he confessed, he didn't deny, he confessed. We... Uh, know that the coming of the Messiah was on John's mind as well as everyone else. So the Pharisees, then they say, okay, all right, fine. If you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? And that's a reasonable question. I mean, John actually fit the description, the biblical description of Elijah, both in his lifestyle and in his message of judgment. I mean, Malachi 4, 5 tells us that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, God would send Elijah, the prophet, to do what? To restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And they, the way they interpreted that was that before the Messiah came, Elijah would come. But again, John is not ambiguous. I am not. But there's some, there's a lot of interesting things here, some of which we'll go through later, not exclusively today. But I mean, even the angel 
who predicted John's birth to his father, Zacharias, mentioned the same prophecy and said that John would be a forerunner in spirit and power of Elijah. Even Jesus said that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So there's, there are connections here. There's one other connection I'll point out later. So why did John the Baptist deny that he was Elijah? Well, John knew, and perhaps even John expected, I don't know what he expected or not, but they expected the literal return of Elijah. And one of the things uh, that John knew was that he did not be carried away in a fiery chariot uh, and uh, didn't spectacularly return. John knew who he was. He knew where he came from, and he knew he was not Elijah. So he denied being the literal Elijah. So not the Christ, not Elijah. So the delegation, they go for a third option. Are you the prophet? Now that's someone in our circles we're not as familiar with. We're all familiar with Elijah. We're familiar with Christ. But who is the prophet? Well, this is the one that Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Uh, The Jews made a distinction between the prophet and uh, the Messiah. And so it's like uh, John wanted to stop all this uh, business, so he just said no. He just said no. And so it was at that point that the delegation became frustrated. They had nothing to report back to Jerusalem. So they asked him in verse 22, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John had told them that he wasn't any of these prophetic figures that they had mentioned before, but that doesn't mean that his ministry was not biblical. While Jesus was the word, John was the voice crying out in the wilderness. And John was clear on who he was and who he was not. Uh, numerous times when I was in the military, uh, I ran a marriage retreat. It's a wonderful marriage retreat, uh, and it was based on traditional marriage vows. So we took the vows, the traditional marriage vows, and each one of those then became a session. So the first session uh, was the I take you. And of course, the question we asked was, uh, do you know who you are? Do you know who the person that you're looking to uh, spend the rest of your life with or that you've already made the decision to spend the rest of your life with? Do you know who they are? Well, in order to know who someone else is, guess what? You have to know who you are. What is your source of identity? And and how do you, uh, how do we, as believers, gain a sense of who we are before God? And how does Christianity, how does our relationship with Jesus Christ shape our life and what we do? John knew who he was not. 
He was not the Christ. He was not Elijah. He was not the prophet. But he knew who he was. He was the voice crying in a wilderness. The dictionary explains that a person's identity is based on the, the characteristics that uh, distinguish them uh, from others. And when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are reborn. And uh, the old dies, and then we, have, uh, we receive a new I- identity. And we become set apart in Christ. And our faith in Him is what distinguishes us from others. Because in Christ, we are treasured. We are forgiven. We are set free. We are set apart. We are loved beyond belief, and we are uh, chosen. In our identity in Christ, understand this. Uh, Once you have identified with Christ, that identity cannot be lost. It cannot be taken away. And even, yes, it's permanent. Even when we fall into sin, even when we fail, even when we struggle mightily with doubts. There are some songs that are played uh, that I hear on the radio. I heard one uh, the other day that I, and numerous times, of course, but it, was, it just struck me this time. that This has to do with part, at least part, and what I'm saying is it's by uh, casting crowns. They, they, put it, they put it this way. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name would care to feel my hurt. Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Who am I that the eyes that see my sin would look on me with love And watch me rise again. Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me? Now listen, here's the answer. Who am I? 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 Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I am. Am a flower quickly fading. Here today and gone tomorrow. A wave tossed in the ocean. A vapor in the wind. Still you hear me when I'm calling, Lord. You catch me when I'm falling. You've told me who I am. I am yours. Why is this important? This is important because in order for John the Baptist to point people to Jesus Christ, he had to know who he was before God. He quoted Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. The imagery here we've talked about before. 
It's when the messenger say, uh, comes uh, through the town and down the road, the king is coming, the, the king is coming. Everybody got out, they got the rocks out of the road, they filled the ruts, they did whatever they could in order to smooth the, the passageway and clear the, the obstacles. And so this is what John was doing. He was preparing uh, the way. Now, the text here uh, says that the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, it's undoubtedly, uh, because I believe that God is a God of geography. Uh, he's a God of many things, but he's a God of geography. And I, so I believe that, but I also believe that it's a spiritual wilderness that he's referring to. I mean... What Judaism had fallen into over the last 400 years uh, was awful. Legalism had replaced a personal relationship with God. God was no longer God who walked with you, but he was God who, if you didn't serve just right, you would be uh, damned or you would be executed or some kind of feeling where this God who all he wanted to do was walk with you like he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden and now he's become this horrid, uh, autocratic, totalitarian uh, monster who if you didn't do exactly what he said, you would pay the price. And that's where, this is what John came into and that's our tendency. That's the tendency of all religions. And that's where we go. We devolve from knowing God and walking with him in order to just simply practicing uh, routines and rituals and rules. Now, let's look a little deeper at what's happening here. Because there was an indirect charge that was being leveled at John. Uh, and that was this, you have no authority. If you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, what in the world are you doing baptizing people? Now you have to understand that in Judaism, the only people who were baptized for repentance of sins were Gentiles who became God-fearers who wanted to align themselves with the Jewish religion. The only other baptisms that happened in Judaism in some sects, not even across the whole, was self-baptism as part like you'll see different things where vows are made and uh, there's different ways to express that. And one of those ways at the end of a vow was to baptize, to immerse yourself into water. But nobody did that for you. Now here comes John without an official title, and he's saying in verse 26, I baptize in water, uh, but among you stands one you do not know. John was calling the religious leaders to repent and be baptized. And his baptism was a baptism of the repentance from sin, which of course cut Eh, it didn't cut them to the heart. I think it just angered them and, and, and made them uh, mad. But also his baptism was anticipating another baptism. A baptism with the Holy Spirit and ultimately with uh, fire. It was a sign to point the people to the coming of the Messiah. 
But he didn't say that then. It would be the next day or the next episode before he would uh, draw a distinction between those two. Now, John was not uh, building up a a following. Uh, He was preparing the people to accept and trust uh, Christ. He told them, uh, one another, who is among you? Uh, He may well have been there that day. But they didn't know him. No one recognized him. And uh, John considered himself unworthy of even the lowliest service uh, for that one. He saw himself as a servant. And Jesus, ultimately, we, we find very quickly uh, that he wasn't even uh, worthy to untie his sandal straps. And you've got to understand, listen to, listen to what, not a contemporary rabbi, but certainly, certainly very early. Rabbi Joshua ben Levi, or Levi, said this, All manner of service that a slave must render to his master, the pupil must render to his teacher. Except that of taking off his shoe. That was prohibited. And yet John is saying of Jesus, I'm not worthy, I am not worthy to untie his shoe. I mean, to point people to Christ, we need to join John in thinking more of Christ and less of ourselves. People don't need to be impressed with us. They need to be impressed with him. Uh, One of the more significant military ceremonies that I was involved in, I was the the MC. And and so uh, we were running through a practice. There were members of Congress. There were very high-ranking military members there. And so during the rehearsal, I began... Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Chaplain John Tillery, and I will be your MC for today's event. Stop! 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 Came, you know, the the protocol people. (laughs) Take that paragraph out. No one needs to know who you are. They don't care who you are. The fact that you're the MC is sufficient. Let it alone. And so, here it was just, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to today's ceremony. It's all about Jesus. When we take and we move the attention to us and away from Him, we begin to feel the burden that we should not have. When we put the attention on Him and away from us, we get a sense of how light the burden of Jesus Christ is. Now, in uh, verse 28, uh, it's seemingly an afterthought, but I don't. The sight, it says, where did these things happen? These things happen in uh, Bethany beyond the, the Jordan. Now, that's not to be confused with uh, Bethany, uh, the home of uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. This 
and it was distinguished, because that, that was near Jerusalem, this was distinguished by saying it's beyond the Jordan. It's on the other side of the Jordan, in other words. Now, in 2015, the UNESCO World Heritage Committee, uh, they added a place to its heritage sites, and it's called uh, Al-Mamudiyah uh, in uh, Jordan. Now, what that means is uh, baptism. Uh, the place of baptism. Uh, and uh, since the early Roman period, uh, before the Byzantine period, people would come to that place beyond the Jordan in uh, Bethany, renamed, uh, of, of course, and to see the place where uh, Jesus uh, was baptized. Now, obviously, Israel has their own site. I mean, you know, but you got to understand back in that day, Transjordan was, was all part of the same uh, holy place. And what's the significance? Why would John just say, and yo, oh, by the way, this was over in Bethany? Does that mean anything to you? Oh, let's do a word study. What does Bethany mean? Maybe there's some meaning there. No, I, I don't want to make too much of this, but I do find it absolutely fascinating that a, a half an hour walk, 30 minutes, 30 minutes uh, stroll, you come to a place called Tel Mar Elias. Now what that is, is the historic place known well before the time of Christ that was celebrated where what happened? It's where Elijah was carried away to heaven in a flaming chariot. Now, while we can't be sure why John said it this way, John is saying he said he wasn't Elijah, and yeah, he wasn't the literal Elijah, but there's Elijah imprinted on John's uh, life. And uh, so all the signs point to John as coming in Elijah's uh, spirit. And according to Acts 17, uh, this is kind of an aside, but it's something that's given me comfort uh, through the years. In Acts 17, the apostle Paul lets us know that where we live and when we live are no accident. It's in the hands of God. So as we conclude... Just three questions to ask yourself. When we repent, do we repent? And then I'll talk more about repentance in other messages as I, ha I have in the, in the past. So remember, just briefly, to repent, it's a military command. It means about face. It means you're going one way, turn around, go the other. However, the question that I have is, does this happen at, a, a mere, uh, at merely a thinking level or a, a heart level? What, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is uh, the repentance, is it a thinking process that goes along the lines of, uh, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry, I won't do that again, and uh, the next day you do it again uh, without the... Without a notion of it changing your behavior. Now, when I say that, understand me, I'm not saying that if you do it again, that makes it 
uh, like exponentially worse or something like that. The goal in life with anything that is harmful to you in the same way the goal with sin, it, you, you can't eliminate it. John, First John, it's very clear about that. We're stuck with it, okay? What you're trying to do is increase the sine wave. You're trying to reduce the intensity, the frequency, and the duration. That, that's, if that's happening, then you're on the right path. Second, is humility something others see in you or in me? Now, the, the, the problem with that is someone who may think they're humble, from an outside perspective, may, people may say, nah, I don't think so. It's hard, it's very difficult, you know, it's, it's like the book, the joke that I, you know, this is an eighth grade joke, so maybe younger now, but, you know, humility uh, written and how I attained it. Uh, so it's it's one of those uh, kinds of things. Pride is the only disease that makes everyone sick, except for the person that has it. Third, do I use my gifts and calling to point people to Jesus? Some people use their gifts and calling to build kingdoms. Some people use them to feel good about themselves. The question, and there's, there's layers to this, right? But the big question is, do I use those things to point people to Jesus? John's aim was to deflect attention away from himself and exalt Christ as the only one worthy of glory. May we do the same. Father, as we contemplate your word, as we look at how John was an example, uh, really in many ways for us to follow, we, we pray that we would, like John, know who we are. Know who we are in you and hold on to that but also, like John, know who we are not. And in knowing those things, to bring the message of hope and salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, to those around us, to point to him, the only one worthy of our worship and praise. We give you the honor and the glory do your name, through Christ our Lord. Amen.